Welcome to What a Scream, the horror movie podcast, where I, your host, Ygrain, chats horror films with a special guest every week. And in particular, we talk about a particular subject or topic that I have previously randomly chosen. And then we each choose a film that we think kind of defines that topic or subject. So this week is all about the pre-slashers, aka the precursor to the slasher genre that gripped the the horror uh, scene from late 70s to the 80s and beyond uh, through several slasher revivals. So these are the films that would have influenced stuff like Black Christmas, Halloween, Friday the 13th, etc, etc. My special guest this week is fellow ghouls, um, from Girls Magazine. It is Caitlin Downs. And together we are talking about two films that we feel were massive inspirations for the slasher subgenre of horror. The first film we are going to be talking about is from the 1960s, and that is Peeping Tom, directed by Michael Powell. The second film is a jello because of course I had to pick a jello anyone that knows me knows I am obsessed with this genre of Italian horror and it is Bay of Blood by infamous jello director Mario Bava so enjoy this week's episode where we talk about what came before the slasher and how these particular films influenced the slashers that we know and love today I would like to welcome to What a Scream, Caitlin, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm always, no uh, always happy to come chat to people. <laughs> so would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Uh, yeah, so my name is Caitlin. I uh, write for my own blog at scaredsheepless.com. That's different reviews, sometimes longer form articles as well. Uh, I also write for Ghouls Magazine um, and a little bit for Horrified Magazine as well. Great. Yep, you're a fellow ghoul. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. we're everywhere at the moment. (laughs) I know, I've been getting all the ghouls on the podcast recently. (laughs) Um, So how did you get into horror and what was the first horror film you ever saw? I think if I was to track it back all the way, the very first one I saw would have been The Exorcist. Okay. Um, But I, I saw it when I was way too young. So right. I was just terrified of it. Um, so I think I must have been about nine or something like that. And somehow it it was on some kind of platform where you could see it at home, which is quite rare at that yeah. time because it wasn't released properly. Um, or maybe it was some sort of box office thing. You know, you could rent things through through the TV. And I had a babysitter in who had her friends over and decided they were all going to watch it. Um and I walked in during some of the more kind of overtly horror scenes then. And I just thought, you know, when you see things out of context and it just shakes you. Um, and so that kind of started it. And then by the time I was 13 and it was released properly, I was like, I want to see it all from beginning 
to end. So that was definitely sort of getting into it. I mean, I was into like kids horror, I guess, as well, like Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark? That was always part of the schedule. Uh, But that was the first kind of big horror movie. Yeah, I'm always so jealous of people that like saw big films like The Exorcist at a really young age because like I didn't start watching horror for, like I was always into like children's horror or like dark literature and that kind of thing from an early age but I didn't actually start watching horror films till I was in my teens so I'm always really like curious about how seeing such like a really scary film like The Exorcist at such a young age affects you uh, as you become an adult yeah, I think it, it was one of those things, particularly when you can't put it together. Like I wasn't allowed in the room for the whole thing. So I often think about people who used to watch things like through a crack of the door or something because they weren't really allowed. Um, and it, it's a very different experience uh, versus, you know, even sort of being a teenager and going to sleepovers and people are allowed to put stuff on there, you know, um, because you feel like you've got a little bit more control over it. I guess. But yeah, that was that was the one. <laughs> <laughs> and what got you into writing about horror? I think sort of I'd been interested in horror for a while um and it was it was only then in about 2011 that I found out there was more than kind of was what was on blockbuster shelves. I mean, I'm from quite a like a relatively small place, so you didn't really have like too much stuff on at a cinema. You had one multiplex, if you were lucky. There wasn't a lot going out. We had a couple of video rental places, but again, you were getting really mainstream stuff. And you kind of get a bit tired of it because everything hit in there is kind of samey. Uh, and then I found out uh, about the Abattoir Horror Festival in Aberystwyth. And I was like, what's, what's that? Uh, and of course went along to that and saw some amazing independent movies there that I would never have got the chance to see elsewhere so then that kicked off getting round to festivals so I think it was really that festival setting that allowed me to really get into things and and kind of think oh there's stuff in this I want to write about you know that I'm really interested in and that that felt like it had a bit of meat on the bones Mm. yeah that's that's a really interesting, like, because I'm going to assume that we kind of come from a similar background. I come from a very rural Irish background where, like yourself, unless it was on in the local cinema, I think when I was a teenager, it was like The Grudge. Um, that was one of the big ones that I remember was out in the cinema when I was a teenager. So, yeah, unless you could get it at Blockbuster or it was in your local cinema, there was, I didn't really know about independent horror. Um yeah. And it wasn't until I moved away to Australia and discovered a video shop that wasn't just like rural Ireland. It was, you know, you could find some real video nasties in there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I think as well, it's kind of like your freedom to things because I know in our village, you know, like the spa shop. Yeah. For a while they started doing sort of... uh, 
rentals or whatever and they didn't really care about the age limit okay so <laughs> they, they were not checking <laughs> your id or anything so we would go in all the time for stuff like halloween h2o and it, because we were allowed to go get it on our own and take it back and scare each other with it so that yeah. was fun <laughs> <laughs> um so let's chat about our theme for today which is the precursors of the slasher genre, the pre-slasher films. Um, so what did you think about this topic when I approached you with it? It was an interesting one because I'm not a I, I'm not a huge slasher person. I know I just mentioned Halloween H2O, but like I, I go for some of the bigger hitters. So soft spot for Scream, a soft spot for Halloween, uh, those kind of things. But as far as knowing a lot of the, about them inside out I didn't really yeah um you know it, it it's never been one of my go-tos in that kind of sense I kind of enjoy watching them and then I kind of don't think any more about them okay yeah I I'd be quite similar with you that the slasher genre wouldn't really feature high up on my you know preferred subgenres of horror um it it never freaked me out as much as it probably should. Like you'd think that a, a subgenre of horror that is kind of based in reality, you know, like this yeah. could probably happen to you. Maybe um, you think that would be a lot more scary, but for some reason it just doesn't scare me as much as like ghosts and possession and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So yeah, until I actually started writing about horror, I never really thought about it. And then I started getting into like Jallo films and realized that like without jello we wouldn't have slashers yeah yeah there's it's so interesting because again uh someone had set up uh january this year to try and get people to watch more more jello and again it was not really a subgenre i was particularly into and even sort of i only got through about six during the month which is not a lot but you know and it's definitely a mixed bag. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was kind of interesting how different they could all be, you know, but you can see in a lot of them, there's a real DNA to it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I think I was definitely more drawn to stuff like the night Evelyn came out of the grave, that sort of the one that's got more of that sort of quasi supernatural thing on it, because it's just more interesting and, it, and they are so stylish as well. You can't deny that. But you've kind of got to watch them, I guess, as different scenes jotted together, almost like you're watching a trailer. If you try and thread it all together, <laughs> you're just going to have a terrible time. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. So we had like the giallo, obviously coming from Italy and European horror. And then on the other side, we had kind of the 1960s mm-hmm. um horror from people like Hitchcock and the director that we're obviously going to be talking about um and it was kind of coming from this feeling of not being able to trust your own neighbor basically Mm -hmm. that's what the slasher and the pre-slasher was born out of um so let's dive straight into it uh would you like to introduce your choice of film and give us a brief synopsis please uh, so I've chosen uh, Michael Powell's 1960 Peeping Tom. Uh, and I think a lot of people will be really familiar with this. It's often 
credited as the film that ruined Michael Powell's career. I know. Bless him. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of a fascinating thing because we'll probably get into all the ways and wherefores of that. Uh, it centers around a uh, photographer and director of photography called Mark Lewis, who is essentially working out a lot of his personal problems uh, in the in the sort of surrounding areas of uh, of where he lives uh, taking on sort of this idea of fear that is distilled in him from his father um, but also that experience of watching fear yeah so. yes there it's I this was like the first time I'd seen it because it's always been on like my to be watched list, but I, I just hadn't gotten around to it. So when you suggested it, I was like, yes, finally. And it didn't disappoint. Like this yeah. film's incredible. Yeah. It's one of those ones as well that I think you've seen so many clips from and it's referenced so often. Um, but even sort of looking at it now, I was like, there's so much more to it than what, even those clips give away because you always just see the the cameras with the camera with the weapon on it going yeah. toward a woman. That's like a tiny part of it. Yeah, it really the rest is. Of it is so interesting in terms of what it says and what it does with with the even with the production of film. You know, the way that looks is incredible. Because the Blu-ray I bought has a uh intro from it from Martin Scorsese. Uh, and when you when you're watching it, you kind of go, "Yeah, I can see why Scorsese absolutely loves this. It makes total sense why he would, because it's about playing with form. Um, it is shocking. It, I think it's still shocking now, because you look at it and you think, "How is that going out to an audience in 1960? Um, you know, even in the in the sort of coming out the same time as Psycho." this feels grungier yeah it's like i know everyone always goes on about psycho and like i i get it with psycho but this feels so much grimier and Mm. dirtier and but smarter at the same time yeah it's quite refined isn't it Mm -hmm. in terms of it's very aware of its position in almost film history and you can see it from I think particularly there's a, a dance scene that we'll probably go into that I feel is so important in that thing because it's acknowledging the kind of filmic debt to stage musicals and then flipping it onto this head, on its head into this sort of more fluid camera that's going to get up and follow you around. And I think that's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, so let's kind of begin by plotting out the the narration of the film. So we've got this person, Mark, who, as you said, is dealing with issues. And mm-hmm. when we say daddy issues, we mean daddy issues. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so many. And I think it's interesting because we talk about sort of the Jallo as a kind of proto slasher format and what's interesting about peeping tom is that you know from the very first scene who your killer is there's no mystery to it um so it's it's almost like you can divide the slashers into who done it or how done it and why done it uh, so you always know then every time you see 
Mark. And it's great because he doesn't look that assuming. He doesn't look that threatening. You know, there's it's a great introduction to him yes um so the very first scene is he accosts uh, a sex worker while having a camera hidden and you know she takes him back to um her house and she starts to get undressed and this is when he attacks her and he films all of this and his thing is he likes to film the look of fear on his victim's face brings it back to his house and likes to rewatch these essentially snuff films. Yeah. Um, it's part of his kind of routine that he has. Um, and this all stems back to his father, who was a psychologist who used to film him as a child and used to intentionally scare him to study his fear reactions. And he was constantly being filmed and constantly being watched by his father. Um, so what did you think about this kind of idea that our parental caregivers form our love slash sex journeys and pathways into adulthood? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely something about the way that he translates his mother's death and everything like that that goes in with that. And particularly, I think I'm going to find the exact word that that was used because I noted it down because I thought that's so interesting. This is what happened. Oh yeah, he he really says successor. Yeah. When he talks about a, a little bit later on, when he talks about his stepmother. Yeah. That, that, and that's such a weird way of phrasing it, isn't it? Because it sort of implies that there's been an improvement go on, and, and I guess that ties into what he also does in terms of positioning women within the film. So sort of sex workers are fair game for him whereas there are others who are not and he doesn't want to see their fear and and it's that division that's really quite interesting yeah um yeah he's so he's also like a pinup photographer as well and filmographer and there's a scene where there is a woman with a facial um disfigurement yeah. and it, it's quite a small it's I thought it'd be more of like a a really big plot point but it's not it's that she turns around and he sees her disfigurement and she's like it's okay you don't have to film my face and he thinks she's the most like wonderful person ever and all he wants to do is photograph her face um because of her fear of being seen yeah absolutely yeah yeah he, he he's sort of quite I think because he had his father delight in his own fear, it's a clear line through that. Uh, and I think there's something particular as well about the when he revisits the footage of himself as a child, because this is such a, a reflexive film. You know, it's everyone watching themselves, watching each other and watching all the way through. And, and that's... Again, it's 1960. You're not talking about, you know, anything massively meta at that point. But it is. It, it is absolutely, you know, and it even points to sort of the studio system of how he's existing on the outskirts. He doesn't have a name, particularly. He's in the background just dealing with things. And, yeah, I, I really like how he can blend in. Uh, and it's his anonymity. And as you were saying, you know, it's a lot of these early slashes are kind of about 
not being able to trust those close to you and your neighbours. And of course, it's interesting because he does have an accent all the way through. And though it's not sort of explained why, and it doesn't seem to be like, at no point does it seem to be he's like this because he's not English then. Yeah. You know, there's none of that in there. It's just, it's all about his experience. And then you've just got this sort of other little strange obvious thing that makes him a bit of an outsider yeah and it's one of the things that I like and we see this it's kind of weird so if we're talking about it being a precursor to slasher in slasher films a lot of the time we see the outsider being the villain and it's Mm. because they are an outsider that they are a villain whether that's because of terribly disability sexuality, gender expression, etc., that we see a lot in especially 80s slashers um, and early 90s slashers. Whereas this one, he is an outsider, but he's not the villain because he is an outsider. Yeah. yeah. It's because of what his parent did to him, basically. Yeah, and his, his father doesn't have an accent in, in any of the videos. So it's a very interesting thing. And you kind of think, oh, is that some sort of trauma response in a way that he's distanced himself in that way you know it, it it's very interesting i think as well when when you talk about the the videos that he sees um when he's getting helen to watch the first one the one with the lizard there's something that feels so found footage about that it leans into that same sort of trepidation that you're about to see something you really don't want to see and it's this idea of him showing her a found footage film. Yeah. In 1960. It's I such <laughs> it's so far ahead of its time. Yeah. It's really not surprising in a way that people reacted so badly to it. Um and I but it is a shame. I mean, you you think of the way that's plotted and how dense it is mm. in terms of meaning and all the little tricks it plays. And yet it was sort of mired in shame. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons that I can think of is, and it's kind of funny because the actual film touches on this as well. It's this very British attitude to sex, sex workers, um, this kind of culture of sexual repression in Britain. Gosh, yeah, yeah. Um, it it's touched upon the film because you know, it's it's it almost has a, a narration on the fact that if you are sexually repressed, and we see it in you know people going to a news agent to pick up naughty photos, or you know it, it's treatment of sex workers. Um, it, it kind of says that if you continue being sexually repressed, we do become sexually violent and aggressive through shame. Um, And this was the fact that there is quite a lot of like female nudity, half nudity, implied nudity. This was one of the reasons why the film was quite heavily censored and quite heavily um, panned. And it's, it's just so funny yet ironic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think as well, even without it's kind of, 
even the things you wouldn't necessarily look at and go, oh, there's really overt nudity in it. The first scene you see him, he's wearing a flasher's Mac. Like we call that a flasher's Mac. And the way it's shot is he's taking this phallic, you know, image out of this Mac. You know, and that's such an evocative image. And it does it every time he's sort of seen touching the camera. It's done in a really obvious way. Like, it's really blatant what we're talking about here. There is no no subtext in that whatsoever. And I think that's really interesting. And again, it's like you almost can't deal with that in, in some kind of way. And I often think as well about, as I was watching this more I was thinking about you know you've got Psycho being released this year and it kind of led me to thinking about Frenzy because Anna Massey who plays Helen is also in Frenzy I think Frenzy feels like a film very much influenced by this uh, in terms of it, it as you say it is grittier it is more interested in in sort of normal people for want of a better word uh, and it is more interested in that sort of close-up uh, portrayal of death you, you know that you wouldn't get in in other things it just seems yeah it, it seems like it has it really woven influence through and I know there's a lot of sort of criticism of frenzy like that didn't get the attention that it it kind of would now I think because it's so far out of the gate but it's this idea of almost audiences in the UK if we're talking about repression almost weren't ready for that kind of closeness to it they don't want the closeness to the material they want a little bit of distance and a little bit of respectability and a sheen yeah yeah um yeah it's really funny because one of the themes that it kind of it it touches on or is kind of all about is this idea of having this morbid kind of fascination with death and fear. And like you said, the British public at the time wasn't quite ready for that. They didn't want to face up to the fact that, you know, there is all this death and fear and you kind of do have to face it. And when you go to the cinema, you are kind of facing it and you are almost being as voyeuristic um, and scopophilic going to the cinema because you're looking in on other people's lives. You're looking in at sex, uh, fear, death, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So it, it has, like you said earlier, it has this meta kind of value to it that it's like right well you're watching this film you're just as bad as mark well yeah it's kind of like the uh the michael haneke argument in funny games isn't it it's sort of like well you can't be angry about it because whose side are are you on because on some level you've come into this knowing that something terrible is going to happen to that family so at what point are you allowed to get annoyed about what you're seeing happen it's a really sort of provocative thing to do. And I think particularly as, you know, like you were talking about the uh, the guys going into the na- news agents and asking for the views I, and things like that. And that, I, that, again, is dripping in sort of subtext. But it's no one saying out loud what it is they actually want. Like, you've got these sort of salacious appetites and they're not being met. So obviously it escalates in private 
throughout the film. And I, I think that's really interesting too, I, you know. Yeah. I always find it a bit tangy that, you know, it's it's kind of saying that we've all got a fascination with fear and death. But, and one of the questions I wrote down in my notes, um, are we as horror fans like Mark? Because we are constantly looking for that fear. I think it's slightly different, isn't it? Because we're often not looking to scare other people. We're looking to scare ourselves. And it's about confronting your own stuff. So, I, And I think that's why horror is so subjective. Because I can watch something and say, well, that scared the life out of me. And that really affected me. But if I show it to you, it might not work. Because you don't have that frame of reference or something like that. It's as much as it connects it also divides because it is based on something you can't control like if something scares you it scares you uh you can't kind of decide that that's not going to scare you the the response has happened before you've even thought about it and i certainly think there's there's obviously a degree of empathy involved in uh in watching horror and this somewhat and I guess all slashers, to a point, remove that in so far... Well, you can make the argument that they remove it. I don't think that's fair, but you can make the argument that you are essentially following the killer in all of them because you you need the killer to drive it. Now, obviously, Peeping Tom is very different because Mark is your central character. He's your anchor. So you, you really don't get to him... It, you know, to be close to anybody else. There's a little bit with Helen and her mother. And you you really feel for Helen because she's in such a, a tricky spot with the way her mother is towards her. But also her mother's right. Like yeah. <laughs> she is, there's a wonderful thing about like when he starts coming around and she's sort of aware that he's there. And I think that's such an interesting part of it that we don't really get and she's sort of oh I don't trust a man who walks quietly and all of these things and I felt him on the back of my neck I was like oh it's such a great line as well I mean for a uh, for that kind of thing yeah I found the mother if we're gonna move on to like the mother um I found her really interesting because in the film she's blind mm. um which I guess is kind of the opposite of what Mark's father was. You know, he was all about yeah. the seeing, whereas she's more about the feeling. And even though she has her vices, she still kind of trusts her parental instinct to try and protect her daughter mm. to a certain degree. Yeah, I, and I think it's it's very notable that sort of, even though she she's obviously... No, she she doesn't have a sight. She does have a certain instinct and a certain knowledge of what's going on. But also she appears to drink to numb herself. And it's sort of almost hinted that she knows a bit too much, you know, for her own comfort levels. And sort of that she's looking out into a world in a way that is going to be even more unkind to her daughter. I, I, and I think as much as Mark's father is interested in fear, 
Helen's mother is also drenched in fear for the outside world and for anyone who comes into contact with Helen. It's quite it's quite a palpable thing there that she'd just rather close the door and, yeah. and not deal with any of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's chat about the setting of the film set then. Um, okay. Mark is one of the cine- cinematographers on this film. Um, and he also commits a murder on the set with uh, one of the stand-in actresses. What did you think about that location? I adored that scene. I adore it. And this is the the scene with Viv, the stand-in, I think it's my favourite scene in the film because it is very much the film playing with how you would normally structure a musical. So you have the the way that things move around, you have her doing her dance, you have the, the way the camera shifts from moving from movie to Mark's camera is is very, very clearly defined. And I think as a kind of horror fan watching it now, you can see where it's going and you go, oh, this is clever. If you were watching it without that sort of earned literacy after so many years, that would be incredibly shocking. I think to just change that language almost that it's speaking. Uh, And it does a similar thing as well, sort of obviously in the aftermath of that scene where he leaves her body on the set uh, in one of the trunks. And you think at one point that he's going to go and try and move the trunk out of the way. He's not. He's just going so he can see when people discover the body. Uh, And it's all about this sort of idea of staging. And, of course, the slasher is all all about staging. You know, you you always have a scene where all the bodies are going to start falling out of cupboards and everything like that. You think of the Judith Myers tombstone in in Halloween. There's almost always this moment where you really ramp up the artifice, I guess, and you kind of forget about the logic of how long has he been pulling that about? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and doing all this, and you just kind of go, yeah, I need to see all the damage in one place. Yeah. Exactly. And I that scene, the dance scene, is very interesting when he converses with Viv because, you know, at one point I think he goes, oh, if only the director could see you now. And she goes, well, if only I could see him now. And it's just this kind of like let's switch the voyeuristic point of view up, you know, like who would be more shocked, me or the director? And it just, it's just, I mean, I guess if you're watching it and not really trying to analyse it, perhaps as we did, the dance scene seems so out of place. Mm. But really, the conversation they're having is a narration on this, again, this voyeuristic thing that film and cinema is. Yeah, because as well, you've, you're just coming off the back of a scene in which there are multiple takes. Yeah. So it's all about the artifice of of film. Mm. And it's almost calling attention to itself all the time that you're watching a film. Yeah. And and I think one of the main kind of shocking things about Peeping Tom is that it put you in the shoes of the killer. Yeah. I don't think that's necessarily true. Okay. I I think that while it, it does to some extent, on one hand, it's then showing you constantly reminding you that it's a film 
You're yeah. always behind a camera. You're always a little bit distant from it. Uh, and I think it's only sort of at the conclusion that you're not, that the camera suddenly moves back out again. Uh, but otherwise, there's sort of an intimacy to it that I think is almost... I I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. it it's a very strange thing. But I think while it's exploring voyeurism, um, it's also testing the limits of cinema and exploring it. Because it can't help but remind you of the difference between this glossy movie set and very real murder then. But it's not real because you know you're behind a camera still. It, it It's a very, it's so clever. Yeah, so clever. it really is. Um, so just chatting about the kind of, the slasher prototypes that it seems to have developed. Um, so we have this kind of, human killer as opposed to like a supernatural monster killer uh, who is a product of um, a damaging family so his father um, we've got the victims that are sexually active and very beautiful and female um, then we also have a final girl we do yeah Helen is the final girl um, so I can definitely see the 80 slashes you know we have the slasher rules coming kind of directly from Peeping Tom. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, I think there's some element, though, of she tries to understand him. You know, and because you know what he's doing from the outset, you're really worried for her because it's kind of like if you're watching a normal sort of slasher where you you're kind of aware it's going to be one of the friend group yeah and you can spend a lot of time sort of pointing fingers and and again it's the whodunit Mm. element of it you don't have that in this you're just watching this girl get closer and closer to this incredibly dangerous man yeah um but yeah it, it is unfortunate obviously but it is 1960 britain that you know you have your sex worker victims and you have the nice younger woman who lives with her mother. She's going to be fine. Like <laughs> it, it's because as well, there's, there's a really sad moment with one of the models in the first scene where she says something about, uh, he's photographing her and she says something about hiding the bruises. And you kind of think as deprived as of kind of genuine affection as Helen's life seems to be. And that's why she's so drawn to him, I think, is that she she sees in him someone who needs her particular skills as a carer. She's still a lot safer than the other women. You know, she does have a home to be at. She's not sort of... Every time she's alone with him, she cho- she's chosen to be alone with him. Um, and I think that's the difference as well. Like, she has... Because part of the sort of slasher finder girl is having someone around her almost to, to take the fall or or to rumble what's going on. Um, but yeah, definitely a final girl. Um, I guess there's not much competition in the sense. It's a shame because you kind of think the the Viv character from the dance scene. She's so fun. Yeah, yo, know, she's so ballsy and brash yeah and you just kind of think oh 
wish it was about her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do. <laughs> yeah, but I find that in most slashers, I'm like, oh, I don't care about the virgin. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think as well, it's like uh, Urban Legend would be a much better film if it was about Tara Reid's character. Yeah. Like, I, I, if she was the final girl, it would be a much more interesting film. Yeah, it's the same with like, I know what you did last summer. Um, I would be so much more interested in Sarah Michelle Gellar's character than Jennifer Love Hewitt's. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess this is the thing. You kind of start from a position of the final girl is really virginal. And it takes so long to really completely remove yourself from that. And I guess it's not like, it's that, you know, not like other girls syndrome, which is, but (laughs) there has to be something to separate her. I I guess it's interesting in this case that it's not actually anything she particularly does. Mm-hmm. It's just the the way that society works. Yeah. That that protects her in this case. Yeah. Exactly, you know that she's yeah. lucky enough to be in somewhere and not have to make the kind of choices that the other women are. Yeah. Um so do you think now um in hindsight and retrospectively there's been this discussion about Hitchcock's psycho that it is a very bad take on gender expression um, against particularly trans people do you think that this is the same with Peeping Tom in um, in connection with sex workers and women Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it pro- probably is. I think, as as we've been kind of discussing, there is this real marked difference between mm-hmm. Helen and the other women. Although, as we you were discussing earlier, the woman with the facial disfigurement, mm. she's not particularly treated as a figure of shock in a way. Yeah. It, it, she is initially... Yeah. But then that kind of fades because you, you're you almost seeing it through Mark's eyes. Yeah. So you have to see the interest in it that, that he does. Yeah. And I, and I think that's sort of the thing. And, and they are given an opportunity to talk uh, yeah. quite a lot. And they are, to some degree as well, given a set of expectations and dreams and wishes yeah so th- there are, there are attempts to draw empathy from them you know mm. it, it's they're not sort of cookie cutter um identical victims they've all got yeah. something about them I, I i don't think it would be fair to say that they're completely yeah just basic templates because you yeah. are given the time with them because you have to for the concept to work right yeah. you, you you in order to see them scared at the point that he decides to to hurt them mm. you have to know more about them yeah you know in essence you know more about viv than you do about marion crane yeah by the yeah. time they're both dead you know yeah. I, I think there is a, a slight sort of there's a shift there, I think, because yeah. this is trying to more, it's just trying to do a divide. So yeah. you've got the difference as well between how you've got the richer women treated. Mm-hmm. So I, I think what's quite interesting is the star of the movie. Yeah. Who is not 
very good. (laughs) (laughs) Her job, she's like, she's being sort of, she's taking quite a while to get get through things, having to be prompted quite a lot. But when she's traumatized by the discovery in the trunk, she's quite pampered to a degree. Like there's someone always with her. And Mm -hmm. yeah, they're not great about calling cut on things. But there does feel like there's some sort of concession to her. Yeah. That the the sex work is not given. Yeah. And yeah. I think at some point, do you have to look at that and say, well, is this a comment on on how, you yeah. know, those two degrees of women are treated? Mm-hmm. And is Peeping Tom doing that on top? Which equally yeah. makes it even more unjust that it got such a kick in at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way I've kind of gathered my thoughts about this film is that whereas I feel Hitchcock and Psycho was out to shock Mm. and didn't care who it kind of exploited or what it exploited or what its narration ultimately would have been received as, Peeping Tom, I feel, is a bit more of a um, commentary on... Uh, a social class system, especially those kind of thrust upon females. Um, And it feels a bit more psychologically smart rather than we're going to kill these sex workers because it's going to shock people. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's completely true because they are given that time and space to show who they are a little bit beyond that. You know, the fact that they're shooting with him at all is because they're doing something different with with their lives it, yeah. it's sort of yeah it, it you can't kind of pretend that sex workers aren't there they are yeah and they're really important yeah um and they really are a fabric of that community as well yeah like that's the thing that comes through in all of this is that mm. everyone knows these girls yeah you know and and sort of there there's there's a sadness to it because you feel like Again, you've got a police force not particularly taking things seriously. Yeah. What a surprise. Yeah. Like, y- you know, it, again, there's a lot in it, I think, that you could make the argument very easily for. Yeah. Michael Powell doing a comment about the that kind of division yeah. and how we view those women. Mm. Yeah. I kind of think that as well, there is this parallel between... Um, sex workers who are in front of the camera um, and then actresses. And I feel like Powell is making this uh, commentary on how they're not that different. So why is one held in a better regard than the other? Yeah, this idea that I think they're both sort of inviting a fee to be seen yeah and which ties in obviously with the the whole wider voyeurism idea yeah. that they're both engaging in acts of voyeurism whether it's pin-up yeah. photography whether it's acting yeah all of those things they're mm. all in some way about wanting and needing to be seen yeah um and kind of the way that they're received and the way that they're perceived by stuff like law enforcement the only thing that separates them is class yeah and wealth yeah yeah it's that safe space to be isn't it Mm. it's it's that helen can retreat she makes the choice to be 
with him and 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 I think also there's something there about her safety or her understanding of her safety yeah is what allows her to get closer to him yeah um and that also protects her because the closer that she is to him mm. the less he wants to see her scared yeah so it's sort of her ability to be like well I'm not in any danger yeah that she doesn't perceive danger at mm. all yeah, you know, I think the the sex worker characters all perceive an element of danger. Yeah, but it's kind of they're in that situation anyway. Yeah, she's pr- repeatedly putting herself into that position. Yeah, and I mean, after the mother says, like, he's always by that window. Yeah, how does that not? <laughs> <laughs> how does that not make her give her pause to think maybe that's. Maybe that's not for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, wake up. Wake up, yeah. Helen. <laughs> yeah. um, so would you recommend Peeping Tom to horror fans? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I think by modern standards, it's probably pretty tame. Yeah. Um, in terms of the actual violence. But I, mm. I don't think that there's... It, it is a template for the kind of meta stuff we've seen before. Yeah. Like the one thing I forgot to mention as well in terms of meta is the idea, and it really upset people, was that in some of the footage of Mark as a child, yeah, it's Michael Powell's own son in oh, those right. films. Okay. Yeah. So it, it again, it's this sort of yeah. like wow, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're talking about fathers and sons and and that passing through of fear and yeah. that sort of imprinting, I guess. Yeah. You know, I mean, the kid's not probably old enough to decide he wants to be in a film yeah. like Pete and Tom, but his dad is making it, so here he is. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think there's loads of things within it um, that both as sort of a, a note in cinema history and horror history, I think, yeah. you know, it, I think it's more than just important for horror. Yeah. It, it really is something that, that does this divide particularly between something more sanitized because particularly after you get the haze code you know because yeah. before that you get lots of exciting stuff yeah. and then the code comes in and cranks down on everything yeah and then you start to get it coming back out mm. and i think that's a really interesting thing particularly with the way this marries styles yeah and this idea of almost michael powell pointing towards this you're going to set up a lot of characters yeah. to die in front of a camera yeah. Um, yeah, in quite a sustained way. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's lost any of its particular power. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's beautifully shot as well. Like, it, it's stunning to look at. Yeah. It's got some really interesting characters. I think, I think it's well, well overdue another visit for people. Yeah, I mean, everyone keeps going on about Psycho, and I'm sorry, but I hot take here, but I think Peeping Tom is a million times better than Psycho. <laughs> I think it's it's probably got a better rewatchability factor. Yeah, because I think once you know, as you said, Psycho is about shocking to mm. some degree. This is one that sort of just sits in the back of your mind somewhere. Yeah, and you kind of keep coming back to this, and and like I say, this idea of you know this tortured kid going under the radar yeah to such a degree so yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so let's move on to my choice then. So I went with surprise, surprise. Um, not at all if anybody knows me and how obsessed with Jello I am. But I went with Mario Barber's A Bay of Blood from 1971. Um, it's got a billion and one titles. <laughs> as do most giallo. It is also called Ecologia del Delito, um, Reazioni a Catena, um, and it was only from its Spanish title, Bahia de Sangre, that it became no, known as Bay of Blood. Um, but it was also released in the US as Carnage, Last House on the Left Part 2, Last House Part 2, New House on the Left, and <laughs> Twitch of the Death Nerve. That's a great title. I love Twitch of a Death Nerve as a title. That's, yeah. It's kind of the thing with Jallo, though, isn't it? Half of them can't live up to the titles because what could? What could? Exactly. So it, um, it centers, well, it doesn't really center all that much. It kind of encirculates. Um, <laughs> It begins with the murder of a countess and then her husband. And then we have uh, <laughs> we have a local tarot card reader and her husband. We have um, an architect, Ventura, and his lover, Laura. And then we have the countess's stepdaughter, Renata, and her husband. And... <laughs> And they are all involved in basically trying to get the inheritance of this bay after the Countess has been murdered. Um, we also see four teenagers who break into the Countess's mansion and are murdered. Um, yeah, it's really difficult to give like a plot of this film <laughs> because it's so convoluted. Yeah, yeah. If I, if this is my first watch of it. And by the end, I was like, my notes are all over the place. Because I was like, wait, who is that? <laughs> Where did they come from? What's their relation? Yeah. Wow, okay. <laughs> and it, it doesn't help that all the men look exactly the same. So similar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, so is that the architect or the husband? <laughs> yeah, you just need... Remember one of those, like pop-up video things you used to have where it used to give you like a little fact yeah. that came up just this is this one <laughs> yeah we need the paper clip that was on microsoft to pop yes! up <laughs> yeah 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 that's exactly what you need yeah <laughs> um so it is considered Barber's most violent film um and the special effects were done by carlo rambaldi and these special effects are I fucking love these. Like, there's one point where a guy, uh, Bobby, opens the door and he gets a massive machete, hooked machete to the face. And I literally let out. I was like, oh, my God. Like, it's it's incredible. Yeah. Which did I, I had the word, this is very gougy <laughs> in my notes. Because there's, when when she initially runs away and there's like that, hooking motion again yeah. as she's running and, and yeah there's a real detail to it and a real yeah. texture to it that's yeah. really nice this sounds strange to go <laughs> oh it's lovely but you know it is it, it is great to look at and it, it does make you it does take you aback yeah because I, I think it is quite an early one 
and yeah. you're not particularly used to seeing quite that detail and that yeah. level um yeah. by this point yeah um it's it's just it's i mean i was this is quite a low budget film they had a very very tight budget to the point where bava to make his tracking shots had his camera and he was his own cinematographer but he had his camera attached to a child's wagon that he would like pull along <laughs> <laughs> Which is not not easy on some of the terrain they're dealing with either. Absolutely is it, you know? not. So it's really surprising that the special effects were so good. Mm. But I mean, a lot of the time we see in horror is when there is this budget constraint or any sort of constraint. That is when the most imaginative uh, things are produced. And that's very true in A Bay of Blood. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot to be said for the freedom of it. Because if you're not mm. sort of reliant on anybody else's money yeah you don't kind of have someone coming in to say don't do that yeah <laughs> you know yeah. don't want you to do it that way or whatever you can just kind of as you say get a child's wagon and <laughs> that that's your tracking shots done you know yeah uh it does give you that but yeah really impressive yeah um so this film especially the scene where we see these four young people break into the mansion I mean, if Friday the 13th isn't a direct ripoff of A Bay of Blood, I don't know what is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because that portion of the film is, is almost a slasher within itself. So yeah. you've got a slasher within a slasher within a yeah. mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Everything going on. I, I'm still not entirely sure I've got it complete track of everything that happens and I, I i think i like it that way i like yeah. to have a little bit of like oh, maybe yeah it turned a bit <laughs> it got a bit benny hill didn't it yeah it yeah like all these people <laughs> running around different rooms like doo, 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 you know that kind of like <laughs> yeah scooby-doo when the one yeah. person's running out a door and like, no not you <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's such a but yeah, I, I mean, that feels very much like a formula that those yeah. have followed. And I mean, they rip sort of the sex scene directly for yeah. Friday the 13th. Although that feels certainly more... How do I phrase this? <laughs> uh, slightly more risky a scene. Yeah. Because they kind of keep going a bit. Oh, they do, right? They run yeah. on top of Which it. I, I, like, I, I think th Friday the 13th just goes, and yeah. they're done. yeah. This is like, oh, okay. And that's yeah. where, where I'm thinking Twitch of the Death Nerve came from, right? Because yeah. it's just, yeah. just that scene in the film. And they're like, wow, I've yeah. got it, Twi Twitch yeah. of the Death Nerve. I mean, it's very stylized and it's very erotic because it's Italian. Like, it has to be, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and Bava's got a great sense of style. Mm. I, but this is so different versus when you look at something like Blood and Black Lace, yes, which is yeah. so lush and lavish. Yes. And this is sort of going completely back to basics. And yeah. it's sort of, I find the lighting really interesting in this and the use mm. of light. And I've always got um, a bit of a thing for any films that take place in a sort of lighting that's neither here nor there. So that okay. dusk time. Yes. Yeah. You know, where, where things, you're not shooting in complete nighttime, mm. but not daytime either. And you've got that sort of, some things are starting to fall out of focus and I yeah. just think it's lovely and it happens sort of throughout the opening titles that go on 
forever (laughs) 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 that you're just seeing this like gradual sort of turn to that kind of light Mm. I really really like that yeah this film is all about like even the style of some of the women for me particularly uh Brunhilde, who is one of the teenagers, and also the tarot card reader, they have some serious gothic beauty. Yeah, yeah. Like the velvet, the flowing black, the the great eye makeup. I was just like, this is fantastic. <laughs> like, this is where the gothic fashion came from, Mario Bava. Um, and it's just despite the ridiculousness of this kind of central plot line it is so great to look at yeah yeah but like we'd sort of said about Jallo sort of if you start trying to follow them in the same way that you might follow other narrative pieces you're not going to have as great a time with them yeah as if you just sort of sit back and soak it up yeah yeah, And I think that's what makes this really easy to do is just sort of sit back and watch it all occur. Yeah. Um, so we have these two characters. We've got Renata and her husband, whose name escapes me because he just looked like everybody else. Um, and <laughs> they are the worst 70s parents you could ever hope for. They literally leave their kids in a caravan for what seems like a couple of days. Yeah, there's quite a lot of changing and yeah, yeah. And it's so funny because when they leave their child, they haven't their children, they're having this conversation where the dad is like, kids should be near their parents, you know, we should care for them. And then they're like, see you later, kiddos, bye. <laughs> and go off to like commit more murder. And it's just like, what? And then obviously this kind of bookends onto the finale of the film. Oh my god. I don't know how I've gone all this time in horror circles without having that punchline spoilt for me in some way. I know. And I hadn't. And I about fell out of bed watching it. I was like, what? (laughs) What? Seriously? (laughs) Because I just couldn't because so much of that sort of final portion, like every Jallo I've seen, is like, this person is the real colour. No, this yeah. person is. No, yeah. this, this, this. And it goes yeah. on for so long that you kind of go, I've lost complete track now. I don't yeah. know what happened. Yeah. And then that happens and you remember that for good. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's your take home from it. Yeah. So, spoiler warning, the ending is <laughs> Renata and her husband embrace, because apparently she finds him more attractive now that he's killed. Um, <laughs> and they're, they're, we've got this viewpoint of their son looking out of the caravan window with a shotgun which he mistakes for a toy and he shoots them. And then his sister goes, wow, they're really good at playing dead. And then they skip off to the bay. (laughs) And you're like, what the fuck just happened? Is it an accident though? I reckon those kids are wrong. (laughs) So apparently, originally, Bava wanted to do this film as... um, kind of centred around the parents that go off for a couple of days and leave their children. Um, And then when they come back, the children shoot them because they've been bad. 
but the studios wouldn't go for that. So he had to make this whole mess in the middle just to have that. And it just seems so out of place. Yeah. It, it's so strange because you, you just think of those like, it's like, I don't know, it, it's that throwback to parents leaving their kids mm. in the car to go to the pub and encourage, here's a packet of quavers and a Coke, I'll be back in a bit. Yeah. And they've just like run off. It's like, yeah, but you don't leave a gun as well. <laughs> like, what are you doing? And it would have helped a lot if they'd had the gun outside because they, mean, right? they don't do well. I mean, Jesus, like, no, bad parents. <laughs> I, I still can't believe that, yeah, that, that that's the end. <laughs> and I just love even the music is so happy as these kids go skipping off hand in hand towards the bay. Yeah, because I guess they've kind of inherited it, yeah. <laughs> They're like, see you later, fuckers, it's ours. <laughs> We did nothing and we've ripped all the rewards. It's good. <laughs> um, so I know we have mentioned Friday the 13th, but can you see a Bay of Blood's influence in any other era of horror or even modern horror? Hmm. I think it's, it's definitely in so so many of those slashes. Mm. As I said, that middle section particularly, you just look at that and you go, well, teenagers go to remote locations yeah. that they shouldn't be in yeah. and have sex. And yeah. I think also a lot of the the slasher stuff, as we've sort of talked about with the kids in a way, is like it's kind of that someone wasn't taking their duty seriously. Yeah. So, you know, the blame for, for Jason... Yeah. Falls to the camp counselors. Oh, you, yeah, you're all too busy going off and shagging each other. Yeah, and kids are dying. Like you need yeah. to, you know. I, and there's that idea of punishment that I think mm. comes through in this, and that yeah. kind of it's it's a meaner slice of of it than you know. And and I think the brutality of it comes through as well. And that idea that you could center things around quite brutal set pieces yeah so it's for example the opening scene is mm. quite brutal i mean perhaps not graphic but it's sustained yeah. in a way yeah. that that would make you feel uncomfortable today i think if it was yes. if it was yeah. in a film as much as things have pushed limits a lot more mm. that's still got a certain sense of power yeah um and as you say the effects i think that's done so much for you know and I guess in a way that middle section is the thing that's most logical about it yeah so it's what people will take away from it people perhaps won't take up the the sort of layered complex relationships and everything like that together and slightly off kilter stuff but they will take that little bit of oh yeah if you're in some way you shouldn't be and someone doesn't want you there. Yeah. What yeah. do you do with that? And yeah. Yeah. One of the one film that kind of came to mind, especially when I looked at A Bay of Bloods, kind of the secret child of the Countess mm. is the killer. Remind me a lot of Cherry Falls, where we find out that there's a secret child and that is the killer. Um and so yeah, this kind of even though it was super convoluted, even that kind of twist 
or mm. twist. Um, you can kind of see in perhaps like 90s and 2000s horror as well. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, I think there, there's there's that thread there that you can draw that yeah and i i guess you can relate it to the earlier things about not trusting your neighbors as well mm, because this yeah. is very much sort of like well you're linked to this person in some way yeah but they wish to do you harm yeah exactly. you know it, it, it's not sort of it, it is very caught up in in a kind of paranoia yeah uh that i think is played less seriously in the 90s and 2000s slashers because I yeah. think they are all quite referential to earlier slashers. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the whole idea of Cherry Falls is obviously that, you know, the virgins aren't going to survive. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you have to flip it on its head. So it, it, all of these sort of slashers need to ride on the back of the Bay of, mm. uh, Bay of, uh, a Bay of Blood. Yeah. <laughs> because that's the template you set yeah that's the idea that you know promiscuity leaving your duties yeah all these kind of moral in air quotes things yeah you'll be punished for yeah yeah absolutely um and i think that that comes forward but certainly with possibly less teeth in the 90s but then again that ending is funny yeah. Was it funny at the time? I don't know. Because <laughs> that's the thing, I guess. You kind of look at it and you go, well, that's quite silly. Yeah. But it, it's great fun. Yeah. Like, and you certainly remember it, you know. Yeah. And how else do you end it? You have them wander off and go like, oh, yeah, done. Hit yeah. credits or yeah. throw in that final little sting in, which, I, again, is something that I think is almost born of... Or it's easy to see as born of the need to set up a sequel. Mm. So a lot of those later slashers, they always have that last moment where you're like, oh, no, Freddy's back. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, the monster's always coming back. And, mm. and I guess, yeah, that's a particularly good slasher punchline to be like, even if you're not going to get a sequel from that, yeah. it's changed your perception of it by the end. Yes, yeah, exactly. And I, I do wonder what, what audiences kind of thought about it when it first went out, you know? Yeah, it would have been very interesting. Um, so would you recommend a Bay of Blood to horror fans? Yeah. 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 You'd have to. Yeah. I, and I, I think, as I say, if if you can see it, obviously not. If you're at the end of this chat, <laughs> you won't have. But like to see it without knowledge of that punchline. Yeah. Um, and also, it's really fun to just take a checklist of the slasher stuff and just tick yeah. it off and yeah. go, yeah, I can see where they reuse that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where they've really found that element. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, it w- would that sort of fall into one of your favorite slashers or? Um. Yeah, I guess. But then again, like my fa- the list of my favourite slashes is very small. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the way I'd kind of describe this film, if someone was like, here, can you describe Bay of Blood to me? I'd be like, you know that meme of Charlie Day uh, from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where he's got all the red string and he's like yeah. trying to wildly explain something. I'd be like, this film is the epitome of that meme. 
Like if that yeah. meme was personified into a horror film, that is a bit of blood. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because you could end up doing that yourself by the end. Mm. Just try and connect like this scene yeah. turns up in this film yeah. like 20 years later or this yeah. 30, 40 years later. It's all going yeah. on, you know, it's... Yeah, exactly. It's so, got a longevity. <laughs> definitely. So if you had to choose between the two films, if someone was like, I want one defining film that is a precursor to Slasher, which one would you choose? Mm. I prefer Peeping Tom. Okay. I think it's more my speed. Yeah. Um, I think there's more... I think there's slightly more depth to it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's not necessarily a bad thing. In yeah. terms of proto-slashers, I'd probably recommend A Bay of Blood because it's setting out so much more of the things that I think we would recognise Yeah. in a slasher today. Yeah. I think it's far more of a... Um, it's far more obvious the through line that we get from A Bay of Blood... Mm to later slashers than it is yeah. Peeping Tom. Yeah. Peeping Tom is slightly more psychological, caught up in the kind of machinations of, you know, yes. Freudian psychology and yeah. little bits of, you know, like I say, little elements of found footage, little mm. elements of thriller, all these things that don't quite, quite tick the same boxes as the Bay of Blood. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. I think Bay of Blood is a little bit of a stronger through line towards the 80s slashers um, and then obviously to the 90s and early naughty slashers. Um, like you, I'd prefer Peeping Tom as a film. Yeah. But I think if we are defining the prototype to a slasher, it's definitely Bay of Blood. Yeah, I think as well what what it does, what what both these films sort of draw up is the way that later slashers are kind of made, particularly in the 80s. It mm. tends to be lower budget, um, yeah. more shooting on the fly. Yeah. Um, sort of, so that means you, you do focus on your effects and things like that yeah. rather than what you get in Peeping Tom, which is this focus on design yeah. and everything like that and very intricately meta plotting. Yeah. I think Bay of Blood, then, you can see those influences far more clearly. Yeah, definitely. Um, so before we finish our chat, I always ask my guests, what is your favourite horror film? Oh, it's like choosing your favourite pet or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, mine changes all the time. So I think at the moment, it's Kill List. Um, okay. I, with... Wicker Man, very close with it. Right, okay. Um, and then Jawbreaker. No, I can't. <laughs> I, I don't choose. Uh, no, it, at, at the moment, I think the film that I kind of keep running back to again and again and again is, yeah. is Kill List. It's one of yeah. those ones I can pick up and watch anytime. Yeah. Yeah, Kill List. Like, when I first saw it, Kill List fucked me up. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that's the thing as well is sort of um, taking it back to the that kind of festival thing. Yeah, Kill List was one of the first festival films I heard of. Okay, and even though I didn't see it 
at a, a festival. Yeah. It was sort of one of the, the first times I'd heard that there was this film that people were talking about yeah. and sort of coincided with finding out that festivals are a thing. Yeah. Uh, Twitter becoming more and more of a thing. Yeah. And that kind of word of mouth and that being the first thing that I kind of went, oh, I'll go to the cinema on my own and see that, even though there's only yeah. like one show in. And, yeah. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's kind of special in that because it was the yeah. first one that, as you say, it, it rattles you. Yeah. Uh, it was like, yeah. oh, the, the things I'm picking up off the shelf in Blockbuster aren't yeah. doing this to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. So, yeah, I think there's a there's an affection for that that's, that's never going to go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and chatting about Precursor to Slasher. Thanks for having me. And thanks for introducing me to a babe blood. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my chat there with Caitlin about pre-slashers. And in particular, we chatted about the 1960 film Peeping Tom, as well as Mario Bava's A Bay of Blood from 1971. So what did you think of this week's episode? Do you think that we were correct in choosing these two films as hugely influential on the subgenre of slasher? Or do you think there are other films? Of course, there's stuff like Psycho um, and plenty of other Jallos as well. But, you know, we've already talked about Psycho. So, yes, I I really like this. They would make an ideal double bill. if you were so inclined to do so. Um, so yes, let me know what you think of this week's episode on Instagram or Facebook at What A Screen Podcast or on Twitter where I am more active at What Underscore Screen where you can also keep up with my writing and my general thoughts on random shit. Um, as always, please rate, review, subscribe, etc. on whatever platform you are listening to me on. I'd really appreciate that. And as always, stay horrific. Goodbye.